Well, again, welcome to you all. So glad you uh, braved the weather. I don't know how, uh, I don't know about the rest of you, but I have friends who are in the mid-Atlantic, and I know they're really suffering, and uh, my thoughts and prayers are with them. As I said, as, uh, as Andy introduced, my name is Anthony, if you haven't met me before. Um, it's a privilege to come and share God's Word with you today. A little bit scary, too, uh, even having done it once before here. Um, tonight, we have, a, we have a tough passage. So before we go to God's Word, let's, let's go to prayer. Father, we know that your standard of holiness is so far above what we could even hope to achieve on ourselves. Lord, yet you have called us to live right. Father, as we look into your word tonight, as we look into the teachings of your Son, Lord, would you make your word grow alive in us? Would you change us as we depend completely on Christ? It's in his name we pray. Amen. We're continuing our series on uh, meeting Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. And um, we're... uh, we're going through what's called the Sermon on the Mount. Now, we're looking at what Jesus teaches. And in looking at what Jesus teaches, we're really meeting Jesus. We're figuring out, we're hearing what type of person is he? What is he talking? We're hearing from himself what the Christian life is like. Now, two weeks ago, Pastor Jonathan preached on the Beatitudes in chapter 5, verses 1 to 20. And he called his message, Grace Mountain. And in that sermon, we heard how the followers of Jesus are surprised by grace, they're seasoned with grace, they shine out with grace, and they're successful because of grace. And the message was that grace really changes who we are to the very core because of what Jesus has done for us. Grace changes us. Last week, we continued further into the Sermon on the Mount, and Pastor Dana preached on the next section of the Sermon on the Mount, verses 21 to 26. He called his message, Tongue Murderers. And there we read and heard about how Jesus addressed the sin of murder and our sinful attitudes of anger and insults. The bad news was that when interpreted through the eyes of Jesus, the giver of the law, It's revealed that we're all murderers in our hearts, in our minds. We're all guilty. 
And we need a solution to that sin. The good news is, is that in Christ, we've got freedom from our murderous thoughts, our murderous words, and our murderous deeds. This week, we're going to continue in the next section on the Sermon on the Mount. And unfortunately, it's again some more bad news. Jesus is going to look at our most intimate relationships, how we act with one another in our marriages, how we act with one another as we speak to each other. And in these areas, he's going to contrast the old ways about thinking about God's commands externally, thinking about external actions, and he's going to talk to, again, what's happening in our hearts, the internals. Aaron, if you could put the slides up. I want to warn you that tonight's passages are really tough. They are very unpopular. They might make you feel uncomfortable. They make me feel uncomfortable. And I've had to wrestle with this passage for the last two weeks in preparation. But if we're going to be faithful to Scripture, then we have to press forward and look at all of the Bible. We have to look at all of what Jesus teaches. Faithfulness to the Bible means that we don't treat God's Word like a philosopher would treat a book that he's reading. We don't pick and choose which parts we like and which parts we don't like. And we don't try to develop complicated explanations for why what's written doesn't say exactly the way it says. We don't come up with excuses and escape clauses. If we distort God's word, we're not going to be listening to Jesus and we're not going to meet the real Jesus. So I'm going to ask you guys to brace yourselves. Tonight's going to be a little uncomfortable. You might have some criticisms to what Jesus says. I know at times I do. But I'm going to ask you to be open and let God's word criticize you. So just to set the context, the Gospel of Matthew doesn't stop with the birth narrative in chapter 1. At Christmas time, we looked at the birth of Jesus. In chapter 2, we looked at the wise, man, wise men who came and presented Jesus with gifts. In chapter 3, we read about Jesus' baptism. And in chapter 4, we didn't, we didn't go into it through a sermon, but that's the, uh, that's the description of Jesus' temptation in the desert and the beginning of his ministry, his healing ministry in Galilee. The Bible doesn't stop at these pictures of Jesus' early life. In chapter 5, we get into what is the message that Jesus is preaching. If we stopped at just those pictures, we wouldn't know Jesus as he really is. So let's press forward. The first point in our passage today is that Jesus is dealing and confronting us directly 
with relational sin. Jesus is walking through the Old Testament Ten Commandments on the Sermon on the Mount. Last week we talked about, um, we talked about anger or murder, and that's one of the Ten Commandments, you shall not murder. He's walking through these commandments that were delivered by God to Mo, through Moses to the Israelites as they were coming into the land. Now, in the passages we'll look at tonight, I'm going to go first. With, there's, three, there's three different passages. I'm going to go first on the surface, and we'll dive down into each of them. So let's look at the first one. Jesus is going to talk about adultery. Matthew 5, verse 27. You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. Now, Jesus is quoting directly from the Ten Commandments here. In fact, it's from Exodus chapter 20, verse 14. God says, you shall not commit adultery. It was written on those tablets of stone that Moses brought down from the mountain. Now, what is Jesus talking about here? Adultery. Well, my Bible dictionary tells me that the Hebrew word for adultery literally means to break the bond of wedlock. Now, nowadays, we don't use the word wedlock very often, do we? Um, but the concept remains. The idea is there's a marriage, there's a union between a man and a woman. The marriage is exclusive to them. They're kind of locked into it. There's a commitment and a promise of complete faithfulness. And that commitment includes sexual faithfulness. Adultery is the breaking of that commitment and going outside the marriage. It happens when one married partner goes and has intimate relations with someone else outside the marriage. Now, Jesus, as a Jew, is quoting an Old Testament command that all of his Jewish hearers have heard a hundred times. They know it. We think of this commandment as a relational commandment, Address, addressing a relational sin because in marriage, of course, it's all about relationships, right? The relationships between a husband and a wife. Now, it's interesting to note that in the Old Testament, this concept of adultery was not just limited to marriage. The Old Testament prophets frequently described how Israel was committing adultery by chasing after other gods. He was using the same language to describe that. That leaving Yahweh and going and worshiping other gods was like breaking your marriage, going outside of it. It's probably one of the reasons why we think of marriage as a covenant, a sacred, solemn promise. In the same way that God's people were sacredly bound to God, a man and woman are bound solemnly to each other in marriage. Let's look at the second um, area or sin that Jesus talks to. Verse 31, it has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. Now here Jesus is quoting from Deuteronomy, which is the fifth book in the Old Testament. 
The book of Deuteronomy deals with civil laws. It deals with how the nation was to govern itself, how it was to worship and act. It described both criminal law and civil law between individuals and people. And it was used to really guide the nation of Israel as to how they were to run things, how they were to behave. Now, the reference to divorce, what is that? Well, it means exactly what it means today. It's the formal or the civil or the legal dissolving of a marriage. It's intended to legally release the two married people from their covenant to each other, from their marriage commitment. Now, it's interesting, that passage that Jesus is quoting about their certificate of divorce is from Deuteronomy 24, and if you dive into it, it's not so much a commandment about the requirement to give a certificate of divorce, but the consequences of what happens to it. It says that if a man gives a certificate of divorce to his wife, and if his wife goes and remarries, she can never come back to him. It's interesting. It's almost like the legal dissolving of a marriage doesn't completely wipe the slate clean. There's still something marked that prevents a full return. Now, just like adultery in the previous passage, we call divorce a relational issue or a relational sin because it's about a relationship. It's about the relationship between two people in marriage. Now, the Old Testament says that God hates divorce. You can find that from the prophet Micah. The church has always treated divorce as a very serious relational sin that should be avoided. At its heart, it's, it's the breaking of a promise between two people formally and legally breaking that promise. One of the interesting things is that the prophets use the figure of divorce to describe how bad things got between Israel and their God. Jeremiah talks about how Israel was so unfaithful to the Lord that it was like he had to reluctantly give her divorce papers and send her away. That's how bad her unfaithfulness was. And yet, surprisingly, despite Israel's unfaithfulness, God always invites her to come back, come and return. This image is powerful because if any of us are familiar, have been touched by divorce, have been divorced, know someone who have been, that image of the dissolving of a marriage is so powerful and strong to think of it how it applies to the relationship between us and our Lord, is a powerful, concrete object lesson. Let's look at the third area that Jesus talks to, oath-breaking. This is Matthew 5, verse 33. Jesus says, Again you have heard it said that to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you've made. Now here Jesus is also referring back to the book of Deuteronomy, from chapter 23, it says there, If you make a vow to the Lord your God, do not be slow to pay it, for the Lord your God will certainly demand it of you, and you'll be guilty of sin. 
But if you refrain from making a vow, you will not be guilty. Whatever your lips utter, you must be sure to do. Because you made your vow freely to the Lord your God with your own mouth. This passage is directly referring really to one of the other Old Testament Ten Commandments from Exodus 20. Not bearing a false witness. Not lying. Bearing a false witness, saying something that's not true about someone else, making a promise but not keeping it, all of these are examples of breaking oaths. And again, it's a relational issue. It's a sin between two people, either between two people or between someone and God. Now, these oaths that are described here were promises that were made to God. Sometimes they were in the form of, As God is my witness, what I'm telling you is absolutely true. It was kind of using an oath to make it sound like, yes, you can really believe me. Other times, oaths were made kind of to get leverage. God, if you will do this for me, then I promise I'll live a good life. I promise I'll do X, Y, and Z. Now, it's fairly obvious that making an oath without any thought that you're going to fill it, no intention to keep it, or making an oath as a big showy thing um, to make people really believe you, it's a relational sin. It's being untruthful and false. It's breaking promises. And it destroys communication between people. So let's sum it up. Jesus is, and he's going through the Sermon on the Mount, he's touching these relational sins. He's touching adultery. Divorce, oath-breaking. All these things were very familiar to Jesus' listeners. But what does Jesus say about them? What does he say about these problem areas in our lives? Well, the bad news is, is Jesus intensifies the standard. He raises the bar. Let's look at, uh, before we look at the first of these, let me just make a little comment about We can look at all of these passages in the Sermon on the Mount and say, oh, Jesus is laying a new law and I need to precisely consider what excuses, what explanations, how can I precisely keep Jesus' commandments? We can come up with very complicated excuses or explanations and that totally misses the point of what Jesus is doing here. He is raising the bar beyond our externals. If Jesus was laying down a precise law and spelling out the exceptions, Jesus would be acting like the Pharisees who had coded up 600 detailed laws that they had to keep. No, his commandments were at a higher level. They're on the front of your bulletin, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. So let's look at the first one. What does he do with adultery? Jesus says, But I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. He goes from adultery to the inner sin of lust. Jesus says his followers must be marked not just with avoiding external adultery, Not just following the letter of the law, 
but they sh- that they should treat their inner lust just as bad. Now, wait a minute. I, I've heard lots of popular explanations that try to explain how we're supposed to deal with this lust issue. I've heard people say, you know, it's not the first glance that is lust or the second glance, it's the third one. Have any of you heard that at a Sunday school, at a youth group, at a men's conference? I've heard that preached. It's not the first glance. It's not the second one. It's the third one. Where in the Bible does it list the number of glances that you get? I'd like to see that. You know, especially for us guys, we have to come clean on this topic. Let's be honest. There are circumstances when one glance, less than a, barely a blink of an eye, is enough to cause sinful desire in our hearts. This is not popular. You're not going to make friends talking about your lust problem, that we all have a lust problem. Jesus has taken the thou shalt not commit adultery commandment and he's intensified it to a whole new level. He says that if you have a lustful look, it's just as bad. Now we're in New England and... Some of you may know the famous letter, uh, the famous book that was written by Nathaniel Hawthorne, The Scarlet Leather. Anyone remember the heroine there? Hester Prynne, right? She was caught in adultery. She had a child. And part of her punishment was to be publicly displayed with a big letter A. She had the evidence right there, she had the child. If you read later on the book, you find out who the father is. I won't spoil it for you. Her shame was made public. As Jesus is going through the Sermon on the Mount and going through this topic of adultery and lust, he's saying if you have a lustful glance, you're an adulterer. That's bad news. I have to stand up here in front of you and relay these words of Christ. And I hate to say it, but I'm guilty. Christ has taken our innermost sins and shown them for what they are. We're guilty. I am. Let's look at what he does with the next passage. Divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now I'm not going to make any friends here tonight with this passage. This is really hard. There has been so much written on when divorce is permissible in the church or between Christians. You could talk about it for 30 hours, let alone 30 minutes. There's so many explanations of how to interpret this passage. If the divorce was between people who weren't Christians at the time of the divorce, or if there was infidelity by one or both partners, 
or certainly the important issue of what if there's domestic violence, what if there's sexual abuse, and making sure not to use passages like this to suppress victims from escaping danger or seeking help. I'm not really qualified to talk about those things, but let's look at what Jesus says here. First, he says that divorce results in adultery, which we've already established as a sin. But then he kind of mentions maybe it's an escape clause, except for sexual immorality. Maybe he said it's okay to divorce then. Well, let's look at what Jesus has done. He said that divorce results in adultery. Except in the case where there's already been sexual immorality, in which case there already has been adultery. He's almost stating the obvious. Either way, there has been a committing of adultery and a victim of adultery. A piece of paper might legitimize a divorce legally, whether or not immorality happened before or after doesn't erase the fact that there has been a breaking of a promise, a breaking of a marriage covenant. What God has joined, man has somehow separated. Like I said, this is not a popular topic. It touches many of us here in Cornerstone. I'm fortunate that divorce has not touched my marriage directly for 33 years. But I am the victim of divorce. I have divorced parents. I have no memory of ever living with either of my parents. My earliest memories, pictures really, are of the breakup of my parents' marriage. I had to live through the shame in grammar school of being the only child who had divorced parents. Not a day, not a week goes by that I don't think about the divorce of my parents. I'm a victim of divorce. I'm a 51-year-old guy with daddy issues. Some of you know I have a terribly broken relationship with my father who doesn't know me, doesn't really know my kids. And that breaking of that marriage covenant by my parents has influenced my relationships. I'm certain that some of the imperfections in my being a father are due to not having a good example of marriage in my life. Jesus again intensifies and says that we our inner sins, our breaking of promises, our breaking of covenants, while they are inside, they're real sins. So I too am a covenant breaker. Maybe not directly in divorce, but it's touched me. Let's look at the third example, truth-telling. Matthew 5, 34 to 37, Jesus says, But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it's God's throne, or by the earth, for it is footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. 
And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything else beyond this comes from the evil one. From the context, it seems like the Jews were taking oath-taking, were, were, were taking, making of oaths to a, to a strange, distorted place. They were making oaths to be showy. I swear by heaven that such and such occurred. Or to be tricky in keeping their promises. They might swear to heaven, but not keep their oath because they didn't really swear to God. Or they might swear to the earth, but not keep their oath because they weren't swearing to God. Or swearing by Jerusalem, but not keep their oath because they weren't swearing to God. This use of oaths to be showy or to be tricky is not the way Jesus says his followers are to live. He says there's nothing you can swear by that God doesn't take into account and will not hold you for it. And he certainly says don't swear by your head because you don't control that at all. It's in God's hands. Jesus says you must be truthful. You must say yes when you mean yes and no when you mean no. Anything else, anything else showy or tricky is a sin. It's from the devil. You know, this type of response convicts all of us. From the lying on our taxes to the little white lies that we make to try to smooth things over where we don't make our yes be yes and we don't make our no be no. And unfortunately, I'm the one who has to be up front here and and I too am convicted. If I take Jesus' words truthfully... I'm a liar. I'm a covenant breaker. I'm an adulterer. Jesus confronts us with the obvious but unpopular fact that every one of our exceptions, every one of our escape clauses, every one of our excuses is a distortion of reality. If we harbor lust that objectifies someone else, we're not loving one another. If we use a civil divorce as an escape to get out of our covenant marriage promise, there's a consequence. If we have a lifestyle of white lies, we are untruthful people. Jesus is expecting a different reality for his disciples. It's a reality that's not in the external, it's a reality that's in the heart. Real love for one another, real commitment to covenant promises, real truth in all areas of our lives. If you're like me, you find that you fall short in all these areas. As we continue in the weeks ahead, if these things don't hit you, the ones that come up will. Whether it's retaliation, loving your enemies, giving to the needy, praying, fasting, greed, worry, that's my big one, judging others, not one of us is going to be spared from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. We're all guilty. Are you uncomfortable yet? The question we have to ask ourselves is, did Jesus really mean it? Does he really expect us to live to this standard? Maybe it's just some ideal. Maybe it's just a bunch of good ideas. 
Jesus can't possibly expect us to live the way he's describing. Well, let's look deeper. What does Jesus say? Jesus expects real change from his disciples. In verses 29 and 30, when talking about lust, Jesus says that he expects us to fight sin with our entire being. Verse 29, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown in hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Now, we can debate whether this passage is, is, is really to be taken literally and that we should mutilate our bodies in order to fight sin. But without answering that question, it's clear that Jesus expects us to fight sin. He expects us to fight it. He expects us to wage war on sin, and that price of that war is going to be high. It will include body parts, and it will include blood. But maybe Jesus is just talking about lust. Maybe he doesn't address this for the other ones. So maybe the other ones are kind of figurative. Well, I don't think that's the case. Jesus expected a radical holiness from his disciples. Back when he started the Sermon on the Mount, what did he say? He said in in verse 20, I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, those Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they were the experts at following the rules. That was their full-time job. Jesus says he expects more of us than them. And they kept the law as a full-time job. Jesus, in fact, we'll find out in a few weeks ahead, expects holy perfection. He ends this chapter by saying, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Jesus is calling us to a perfection that compares with God the Father. He's not kidding. And at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he expects us to put his teaching into practice. Chapter 7, verses 24 Everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on a rock. And in verse 26, but everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. He expects us to put his commands into practice. He's not talking about a hypothetical goodness. He expects righteous, holy perfection as his believers put his words into practice. In the Gospel of John, Jesus says, you're my friends if you do what I command. Jesus really means it. So what's the conclusion? Jesus is exposing our sin. The standard is higher than we ever thought. We don't measure up. But there's really good news. There's good news in the Gospel. I've spoken for 30 minutes on the bad news. Our sin is so great. But the good news is the gospel. Jesus perfectly lived the complete requirements of God's perfect law so that we could be considered perfectly righteous. I love this passage from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us 
so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We worship Christ because he took on our sin. He was our substitute. How did he do it? Colossians 2, verses 13 and 14. When you were dead in your sins, with a list longer than I have on my chest here, in the uncircumcision of your, of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. How did he do it? He took it away, nailing it to the cross. It's like he took all of these things and placed them on the cross. Every sinful deed, every sin you've committed, past, present, and future, was nailed to the cross. Do you want that? I want that. How do we get that? Romans 3.22, this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. You have to put your trust in the man, in the God-man who took your sin upon himself. And as he bore your sin on the cross, all of his good deeds, his perfect life, his life of living the complete sermon on the mount, it's given to you to wear as a coat. You know, when God looks at you, he sees Jesus' good works. You're completely clean. Jonathan recommended in this week's Cornerstone Connect that you listen to a sermon by Pastor uh, Timothy Keller on, uh, on the Sermon on the Mount. It's called the Inside-Out Gospel. I really recommend you take 39 minutes and listen to that sermon if you haven't done already. Don't give up with it. Stay through it. Especially pay attention to the last five minutes. The good news of the gospel, as Pastor Keller says so clearly, is what makes Christians, you and I, different from religious people like the Pharisees. We don't try hard to live our righteousness externally. Christ works inside. He changes us from the inside out. And when he does that, we start to hate sin. We start to change. We start to love God's law. And we start to obey. Not out of our own strength, not out of our own merits, but Christ changes us from the inside out. You know, in the old days, we had hearts of stone. We couldn't obey. We hated obeying. We hated God's commands. And as God promised to his people in Ezekiel chapter 36, he said, I will give you a new heart And I'll put a new spirit in you. I'll remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit on you and I'll move you. I will move you to follow my decrees and to be careful to keep my laws. He's the one that's doing it. 
He is taking all of your sin and giving you power to obey. This gives us a whole new motivation as we look at the Sermon on the Mount and we look at this high, high bar, this high standard of obedience. It's all about becoming what God has declared us to be, righteous. The gospel changes the bad news of Jesus' unattainable standards of perfection into the good news that we become people who love to follow God's law. God is transforming us into people who can obey. The sermon started with some bad news, but there's good news. If you put your faith in Christ, your life will be transformed. You will not be forever stained by the sin of adultery or of divorce or of oath-breaking or of any other of the sins that are listed in the Sermon on the Mount. God is making you into someone who knows him, who loves him, and who wants to obey him. The good news is that Jesus is transforming his disciples from covenant breakers into covenant keepers. The life of the Christian is just becoming who God has already declared us to be in Christ. That's awesome news. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, when we consider your word, your holy perfection, it seems so out of our grasp. But we give you thanks for Christ who took in his body, who bore our sins on the tree. And more than that, gives us his righteousness as we put our faith in him. And more than that, fills us and transforms us into people who love your word, who love your law, and who really are different from the inside out. Not because of what we have done or what we're trying to do, but because of what Christ has done. Father, I pray that you would continue that work in us, that you would continue to transform us, that you would continue to make us into radical disciples who love you, who love your law, who love your word, and who love one another. Grant us that, Lord, I pray. And Lord, as we reflect on the message, as we collect the offering, we give you thanks for this church. We thank you, we thank you for the many talents and, and abilities that you've placed here, that you've brought us into community. It's here that we hear the gospel, that we hear your word. It's here that we encourage one another and build one another up. Lord, be with us as a body. May everything that's collected be used for your kingdom. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.